Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Rhodes, Professor of Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University and Chair of Surgery at Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. In addition to holding leadership positions in the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Dr. Rhodes also served as president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma in 1993 and used his presidential address to espouse the development of clinical practice guidelines for trauma, particularly in relation to care of the injured patient in the ICU. His presidential address can be found in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 37, Issue 4, pages 635 to 644, October 1994. Thank you for taking the time to join us today, Dr. Rhodes. You're welcome. My pleasure. I thought we'd start by just asking you to give a brief review of your background and how you came to be interested in the role of clinical practice guidelines in trauma surgery. Uh, two, two things happened to me that, that influenced me. Uh, one was when I was in medical school in Philadelphia. I, was, uh, I went to medical school at Hahnemann in Philadelphia, and in those days, uh, all the trauma went to uh, a central hospital. Uh, called uh, Philadelphia General Hospital. Uh, we used to refer to it as the PIG, actually, PGH. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, I uh, saw at that particular time, and this is back in the late 60s, uh, senior residents uh, were managing the trauma with some oversight of, uh, of attendings, but it was... Uh, on a rotating basis, all the medical schools in Philadelphia would uh, staff the trauma intake at Philadelphia General Hospital. And uh, what I saw was a lot of inconsistencies. It didn't fit with everything that I had studied in medical school. It, it seemed like there was, it wasn't very systematic. It was interesting, and you certainly learned as you went. But it, it clearly, uh, uh, in my mind, opened my opportunities to, I thought, gee, we could probably do this a little bit better. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I had my interest. Uh, and then uh, when I was doing my uh, residency, uh, Uncle Sam uh, tapped me on the shoulder for a couple of years of service. And as part of that process, I, uh, I did not serve in Vietnam, but I, was, uh, I got uh, drafted at, right at the end and saw a lot of what was happening there and uh, did have the opportunity to take care of many of the patients that were involved. And, uh, but also saw the passion of the surgeons who, in my mind, kind of revolutionized uh, trauma care. <clears throat> and this simultaneously came into, uh, came into being at the time when there was a uh, seminal uh, paper uh, presented uh, called Trauma the Neglected Disease. It was the Institute of Medicine, as I recall. And so there was a lot of uh, interest in well, why can't we do a better job with trauma care uh, in the United States. And then the Vietnam was just coming to a close. And uh, that, that type of uh, uh, environment uh, stimulated me a lot to think about, uh, gee, we can do a better job with, with uh, trauma. And then about that time, the uh, ATLS was coming into, uh, into play. Uh, uh, interest that had an interesting start, which is a story of its own. But uh, that uh, was the first time that uh, we talk about 
clinical management guidelines and protocols, et cetera, is right and uh, beautifully done, uh, widely accepted instantly. Uh, as you know, most surgeons are uh, skeptoids by nature, and, uh, but they adapted to this very, very quickly. It seemed to make sense. And of course, now it's revolutionized trauma care around the world, uh, ATLS and, and its thinking processes. So uh, that kind of prompted me after I finished my surgical residency to get involved in, uh, uh, to do a fellowship. So I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, when I was in the Army, I served with an orthopedic surgeon that was at the University of Maryland, and he was telling me about this, uh, this uh, new place starting over in Maryland called the uh, Shock Trauma Center. And uh, so this, I went over there with Dr. Cowley and spent uh, just one year, but uh, that really was the uh, cemented my thinking about clinical practice guidelines, and now we call them evidence-based guidelines, uh, because uh, the entire uh, effort uh, at the shock trauma unit there in Baltimore at that time was uh, uh, very much driven uh, through pro protocols. Uh, as an example, uh, we did not give uh, pack cells to anybody. Uh, they got, uh, they got fresh whole blood. Mm -hmm. uh, another example is that if you were on a ventilator and 48 hours went by, uh, you got a tracheostomy. And uh, we as fellows at the time used to jokingly call it a, a protocostomy <laughs> because uh, you, you had to do it. The third thing was no visitors were allowed into the unit until the patient was out of the unit. Uh, and the fourth thing was uh, we Today we're talking about universal protocols and the gowns, masks, gloves, and things of that nature that uh, I think everybody thinks we just invented this new process of managing the ICU with uh, gowns, masks, and gloves for everything that we do. Well, that was routine. At uh, 30 years ago in the uh, shock trauma unit, Dr. Cowley uh, pushed that. And I think everybody that's gone through that and subsequent other area, other trauma centers around the world have gotten the sense that it works better when there's uh, predetermined uh, uh, guidelines so everybody gets on the same page. Because uh, trauma doesn't know, doesn't watch the clock. And uh, it can be very fatiguing. Uh, people can get confused. And my definition of a trauma center is a, is a hospital that is, uh, that doesn't, doesn't feel like they've been traumatized when a, when a trauma patient comes in. They're waiting for it. They're expecting it. It's what they do. And uh, so that type of an organization makes a lot of sense. So you, you almost practice it over and over and over again. What happens when a patient comes in? And then you use the different phases of trauma care. You have the pre-hospital phase. Uh, there's protocols out there and guidelines that have uh, through the, uh, the EMS community and, and all the uh, uh, pre-hospital uh, 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 courses that are available. And then there's a resuscitation phase and the most complex phase, which is kind of where I focused my discussion uh, at back at the East meeting, was on the critical care phase because that by far is the most complex and requires a lot of guidelines. And, uh, but, but also in the, the post-critical care phase, it, it helps to, to have uh, uh, protocols and, uh, for rehabilitation, for example, and of course the analytical phases of trauma 
relative to performance improvement and those types of issues. Now, I think most everyone would agree that, that some sort of a guideline in general is a good thing. Certainly today, doing what Dr. Cowley did so many years ago in terms of uh, all but mandating a tracheostomy day two, et cetera, would be really difficult. And so how has culture changed? How does one go about these days implementing a guideline and getting buy-in? Well, that's, that's a, a good question. I mean, we, are, uh, we now live in a, uh, uh, ironically, in, a, in a, an environment <clears throat> that I term uh, uh, regulopathy. We've got a, uh, uh, in, in my view, uh, over-regulopathic environment in terms of trying to move things forward. And so uh, it, it can even make it a little more difficult to, to push forward the idea of yet one more guideline to uh, say how we're supposed to do things. Now, I think the, the normal pushback, especially for surgeons who, who uh, and trauma, traumatoids in particular, are very... Uh, focused and uh, they kind of know how to do things and, and uh, uh, I think are confident and uh, don't really like to have their judgment uh, uh, questioned from time to time. Uh, however, uh, I think that they, uh, if, if they see the evidence, and this is why we've gone from clinical management guidelines, which is what we did at the Cali Institute, we didn't have a lot of data to support what we were doing. But I think surgeons now, when you see evidence-based guidelines, where you have some high-quality uh, evidence to support it, uh, even the most uh, uh, resistant or the, ref the most refractory person to this guideline regulatory effort uh, buys in if they see the evidence, the, the clinical evidence to support it, because I think that's an intrinsic uh, satisfaction. Uh, having said that, uh, in order to do it, uh, you've got to monitor it. I know there's uh, people out there that feel that you cannot improve anything that you can't measure. Uh, I don't subscribe to that. Uh, I believe we improve things every single day that, that we really don't have the ability to measure. Uh, I understand the hypothesis of, of that concept, but I think in trauma care and now in emergency surgery, uh, emergency care all over the place, uh, uh, you, there's certain things you can't measure, and the idea is that, well, why would you have a guideline if you really don't know, uh, you can't measure the specific outcomes? Well, I would say particularly if that guideline in general was based on a retrospective study, and you get the, uh, the evidence-based folk who really look for prospective validated randomized trials, which are very, very far and few between. Well, that gets down to the word, and this is an a uh, very important thing uh, to discriminate between. It gets down to the, uh, the, the, the definition of evidence-based medicine. And unfortunately, like so many things in our society, words get a life of their own. And what many feel when they hear the word evidence-based medicine, it, it implies it, it has to be level one or class one evidence-based which means prospective randomized controlled trials. But uh, the vast majority of evidence-based medicine is not that. It's actually class two and class three. And uh, class two are your retrospective studies. They can be prospective, but they're not controlled. They're certainly not randomized. And your class three is uh, expert opinion and uh, uh, consensus, uh, things of that nature. 
uh, I think they they add value. Uh, so that if, if you say we don't have a class one evidence to support this, then, then we shouldn't be doing it. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think most things that we do, we'll never, we just can't have. It's, it's, uh, pra it's impractical to have uh, class one evidence for all of those things we do. So evidence-based approach to managing patients doesn't mean uh, class one evidence. Uh, it's nice, the more of that you have, the better, but it's to do a, a class one study uh, is, uh, you're not even gonna get out of the gates without a half a million dollar investment to do a true good class one study on just about anything. Uh, so you say, well, what about consensus and expert opinion and things of that nature, is it of any value? I say yes. Uh, how can I support that? What's my evidence to support that? Uh, I would refer you to a book by Sarah Wecky called uh, The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, it's, it catches your attention. Uh, so the idea that uh, the vast majority of people uh, can actually uh, do the right thing most of the time is more impressive than what we would think, especially if you look at elections and things of that nature that, that, that happen. Uh, so <clears throat> when you have people focused on things, when you don't have the prospective trials, I think consensus matters. I want to know what the experts think. I want to know what the, the trauma docs that are in the pits uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I want to know what they think because uh, that helps uh, decide. That, that means something to me. Even though somebody says, show me the evidence from the outside world, somebody that's never been in a trauma arena. Uh, uh, so uh, evidence-based medicine does not mean prospective randomized. Now, the other issue is <clears throat> one of the pushbacks is, well, you know, Where's the where you know, medicine is a art, uh, and and my answer to that is well yes but the the art of medicine is learning how to apply the science, that's the art, and uh, well isn't it too much cookbook if you have guidelines and protocols, uh, and, just, and in fact in your in your uh, speech to the East as a president you you not only called it potentially cookbook you called it rigid, unthinking cookbook, oversimplified, and cumbersome with untainable consensus. And, and that was the pitfall, of course, that one could fall into. Well, that was the, uh, I mean, in the context in which I made that comment was <clears throat> the criticism of doing these guidelines. Yes. These are the criticisms that you hear. And uh, that's, that wasn't certainly my position. My position in, in, in was that uh, we need these guidelines and that, in fact, uh, uh, if if you, there, are, there is a risk that they can be perceived as rigid and unthinking and cookbook, uh, you know, just, just, follow, just follow the list, <clears throat> unthinking. Uh, the, the idea, well, you know, why would you need to, like, study and have experience if you can just have a list and follow it and most of the time it's going to work out? Well, it, it isn't that simple. And that, that's uh, when we talk about guidelines and, and protocols and uh, when we talked about them in the early days, we weren't using the words evidence-based. Now we are. But as I mentioned, the word evidence-based gets a, a life of its own, presumed that uh, the word evidence-based means class one prospective randomized controlled trials, where in fact <clears throat> most of evidence-based medicine that we use today is not that. It's class two and class three. And I, I would subscribe to the, to the, uh, uh, the thought that that's actually adds a lot of value. That's the best we have right now. We don't ignore it. We try to continue to, to upgrade it. So 
Uh, and so yeah. what, what do you say to a uh, new, say, junior recruit, and here you are the chairman of surgery or maybe the trauma program uh, director. You've implemented a handful of uh, guidelines based on the evidence present. The evidence right. may not be so great. And you have a new recruit who says, you know, I, I don't want to do it this way. And this is a guideline after all. It's not a policy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to deviate. Uh, I, I actually would be encouraged to hear somebody say that. I like the idea of... Uh, uh, people having the individuality and, and uh, thinking outside the box and, and raising some challenges, uh, we, should, we should have people challenging us all the time. And in my role as chair, somebody comes to me and, and, and said, uh, Dr. Rhodes, I kind of uh, respect uh, your position on this and know that you've been at this a while, et cetera, but, you know, in my heart of hearts, I, I, I don't really buy this. I think there's a, just a better way to do it. I'm loving that when I hear that. But my response will be the same response that I heard from Dr. Cowley when I said that exact thing to him. Uh, and that is, sounds good to me, uh, prove it. You go design the study and prove that you've got a better way. And then that's, that's what we're going to do. And so that's, that's what I would say to the person. Uh, uh, you don't want to follow the guideline, you know, you're not in jail here. Uh, you, you, uh, you do what you think is best, use your judgment, but if you have a better way, you're, you're not obligated to me necessarily, but you're obligated to your patients and to the communities we serve to find a better way, and that means participate in uh, research, do the studies. Uh, it's hard, hard work to do a study, uh, especially when they don't turn out the way you think they should, but even from those, we learn a great deal. And so that brings up a good point. So it's one thing, I think, to uh, challenge a guideline and then study it and then either prove or disprove your own position. But can a guideline onto itself be harmful from a regulatory or an accrediting body perspective? So again, the example would be uh, you've implemented a guideline as the chief of the service. Um, I, as the junior person, decide I'm not going to follow this guideline, but I'm also not going to research into it. I'm just simply not going to follow the guideline. When an accrediting body or a regulatory body comes in and surveys the trauma center, can, I, can the trauma center be cited for deviation from guideline? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that precisely. Uh, I suspect uh, if it were egregious, uh, something that is uh, uh, written into their own policy and they don't follow it, uh, that's, that's how you get your hands slapped in our regulopathic environment. If you write a policy and don't follow it, that's a no-no. Because the difference between a policy and a guideline is? Well, a, a, a guideline, a, a po- policy is thou shalt. Uh, uh, a, a guideline is, here's a good idea. This is a general sense of, here's what I would think. Here's how you might want to approach this. So it, it doesn't have, the guideline does not have the same, uh, the same sense. Now, in answer to your question, uh, if, if people are, quote, deviating from the guidelines, I mean, it's got to be egregious. It's got to be somebody that, that would say, uh, not only no, but hell no. And I, why? Because I just don't want to do it. Uh, that's pretty rare. I, I must say in, in the time that I've been involved in this and training people, that, that would be a very, very rare event. So I, I don't, people, I like them to challenge the idea, but uh, I don't see uh, uh, just doing it because the man told me to do it. I, I don't see that. And um, is there evidence to suggest that these guidelines have actually improved outcome? 
Uh, yes, uh, there's there's a number of studies uh, out there that uh, show uh, certainly for ATLS and and th that's an example, but also uh, uh, I mean even if you talk if we, we step outside of trauma right now and we get to modern day thinking, and we look at the uh, uh, the universal protocol in the operating room, the timeout, the, the checklist, the the World Health Organization checklist with the uh, uh, I'm assuming you're very familiar with, sure. with that concept. Sure. Uh, uh, the, you know that that was that was new uh, kind of uh, kind of it hit us and everybody's well, how are we going to do this? And, uh, and then you look at it and say what's what's the outcome been with this? And uh, by the preponderance of studies uh, have shown positive outcome from that process. And of course, you get into the aviation world. Uh, that's where all this stuff comes from. You know, they use checklists all the time. They don't even have a second thought about not doing this. So, uh, yeah, there's evidence. And then you get back to all the different uh, uh, guidelines for uh, something. Let's just pick compartment pressure, okay? Uh, you, you have an institutional, uh, somebody gets a lower extremity, a closed uh, lower extremity fracture. You know, what do you look for? What, 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 how often do you got to look? Uh, when do you uh, measure the pressure? How do you measure the pressure? What, what are your uh, what, what's your criteria to uh, do the fasciotomy? And then also things like open and closed abdomens. You know, how, when do you go back? How often? What criteria do you use? Uh, I, I put all these things into the evidence-based guidelines. I think it's way beyond. I mean, there's so many out there now. Uh, I think I think there's evidence uh, that. Uh, Probably, if you look hard enough, you're going to find some evidence that they've made no difference in certain areas, or even they've actually done harm. But the preponderance of approaches, when it's systematic, well thought out, uh, where you have to get buy-in. Again, you, you, the, the way to get buy-in is to have people allow people to uh, challenge it. Uh, <clears throat> the majority of them will show you uh, good outcomes. That's that's the the sense of of the literature. Now, is it? Uh, are you, have we shown through uh, the, the using the guidelines that uh, the outcomes uh, through prospective randomized controlled trials are absolutely, well, the number of those are pretty small, uh, and we would like to have more. But if you, in the answer to your basic question, has it been shown through scientific effort that guidelines can and do make a difference? The answer, that's clearly yes. And so... EAST, of course, has a number of guidelines that it publishes. It's one of the biggest uh, endeavors that EAST has been doing and continues to do successfully, I think. Can a trauma center simply take those guidelines and incorporate them, or do we need, does a trauma center need to customize them a bit to their local environment? Uh, that's, it's a great point. Uh, one size fits all is, is, is not appropriate. Uh, the, the art uh, of using the science is uh, figuring out how to make it work best in your environment. Uh, if you're in a rural hospital, the way you uh, approach these guidelines are going to be different for certain types of things. Uh, depends on how many, what your manpower is, depending on what your operating room capabilities are, and things of that nature. Uh, yes, the answer to your question is, uh, should they be tailored? Yeah, that's why they're called guidelines, because they should have the flexibility to do exactly that. And it's one thing to uh, to draft guidelines and either incorporate them and alter them or make them up de novo. It's another thing to measure outcomes and measure compliance. That takes personnel, which, of course, is money. 
So how do you then uh, leverage this with administration to get the resources to make sure your guidelines are appropriate and actually being followed? Yeah, so there's two things. Uh, one is uh, what, what do you want to measure? Do you want to measure uh, have, do these guidelines improve outcomes or do you want to measure are we doing the guidelines? In other words, are we measuring the process or the outcomes? And, uh, I mean, as, as you're aware of the, uh, the recent uh, article in, uh, I believe it was in JAMA, which suggested we should skip the skip. Yes. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that the idea there is that they, they were unable to show that using the uh, surgical care improvement process uh, guidelines uh, haven't made any difference. And, uh, but that would be, that has the potential of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because uh, what led to each of those guidelines per se uh, was evidence-based and uh, so the idea, well, at least in the, the way they designed the study, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, tell any difference. But let me get back to your specific question, and that, and that is um, how do you talk administration into providing the personnel and resources to measure how you're doing with these and, and embed this and insinuate it into your performance improvement process? Right. Uh, it's hard because, as, as you well know, we, we are uh, – years, uh, a few years, if not months, away from a, a major healthcare tsunami here in the United States. It's going to change everything we do, uh, the way we think. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole new paradigm. So uh, resources are not going to be very robust. Uh, the good news is this, uh, and this is, this is to me is probably the, the most optimistic uh, uh, thing that I've seen happen in the past uh, uh, four or five years, not only related to trauma, but to our whole healthcare environment. It certainly relates to trauma. And that is, if you were to be asked, what's the one thing in our society right now that's getting cheaper? It certainly wouldn't be gasoline or bread or uh, maybe housing. But, but in terms of things that are getting cheaper for good reason, <clears throat> the answer is, is uh, information technology. It's uh, the speed of, the, uh, of computing has, uh, according to Moore's Law, has uh, doubled every 18 months and continues to do so. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because our ability to measure the things that we have to measure for outcomes and things of that nature can be built in to our uh, electronic health records, which are now a little on the clumsy side, but will get better and are getting better, uh, so that <clears throat> you can actually have, through your clinical decision support systems that are embedded into your electronic health records, you can actually be measuring that without having a bunch of uh, what I call chart snoopers running around with clipboards uh, trying to f read somebody's handwriting in a chart to figure out if they did or did not do the right thing. That, that resource is expensive. Uh, that's the best we had in the past. They did, they've done a great job, but we're, we're, we're going to be into a new arena, and by the year 2020, uh, 15 to 20 percent of people, for example, that are sitting in hospitals using, you know, with the lights on and the buildings and the, the gas and the parking lots and all that, uh, 15 to 20 percent will be working from home. Uh, they clearly have the, uh, the, uh, the, we have the computer technology to do it. And uh, I, I know uh, once you and I talked about a, uh, a book that I, I recommend for everybody to read because it really is very exciting to me uh, when we're looking for uh, optimism in the time of uh, uh, when our country seems to be uh, uh, in, in some sort of, uh, sort of a distress, especially when you watch the food fight in Washington. Uh, 
and that is the, the, uh, there was a, a book called Physics of the Future uh, by Michio Kaku, K-A-K-U. He's a, uh, a Ph.D., a very famous fellow. Uh, if, you, if you don't know, recognize the name, you would recognize him because he's been all over television, Science Channel and Discovery Channel, etc. But he wrote a book that came out in March, uh, and we're now in August here. Uh, and it, and uh, he uh, is uh, he's a very famous guy because he's the, one of the co-founders, if you will, uh, or inventors of the uh, string theory in physics. That's like big. I mean, <laughs> you know, Einstein came up with uh, relativity and uh, the, the gravity kind of thing. <clears throat> and then we had the quantum thing. That was like huge. That was a whole new physics thing. And now string theory. I mean, it's, it's like in the big three of the world of physics. Uh, and if you look there, uh, he, he's, he interviewed 300 scientists around the world, and there's a section in there on medicine uh, and on how we're going to do things and why we do it. And you see uh, it becomes pretty clear. It's not a futuristic book. It's not uh, somebody imagining. Uh, this is based on technology we have today. And uh, <clears throat> when you see that and you get a sense of how it is going to revolutionize what we do, uh, the answer to your question about how do you get the resources in a hospital to monitor the guidelines and the outcomes and things like that, I think uh, we will be able to do that uh, almost uh, built in uh, to the electronic health records, even though right now uh, they can be more pain than they are uh, fun. <clears throat> but, you know, I, clearly we have to eliminate the handwritten word in, in medicine because it's, it's right up there with hospital-associated infections, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of patient safety issues. So uh, that's, that's how I see doing. In terms of today, you know, how do you get the, uh, the resources? I mean, you, you do what you do to get everything. You, you have to, you know, use persuasion. And uh, the good news is <clears throat> when, you, when you use the word performance improvement, especially with the patient safety initiatives going on today, uh, uh, that, that will help you get resources. But uh, that won't be able to continue. We're going to have to look for a, for a better way. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about our ability to uh, uh, be able to uh, precisely outline how effective we've been with our guidelines and protocols in, in management because you won't, it won't be dependent on somebody retrospectively going back and looking through a handwritten chart, which is almost unreadable in most hospitals. And so you have a little bit of a um, unique perspective because here you are as chairman of surgery. Is there a difference in getting buy-in and measuring outcomes and all the things that go into clinical practice guidelines between trauma surgeons and other divisions of surgery within a department? In other words, the trauma surgeons, are they more apt or less apt to accept this? And how do we, how do we propose it to move forth into other divisions? Very good question. Uh, because of the uh, what I described, and, and people grew up in the in the world of trauma, uh, it was very guideline driven. Uh, because ATLS has been uh, 30, 35 years now, and uh, so I I uh, do believe that uh, uh, they latch onto this better. Uh, it, it's kind of uh, it comes with the culture of, of trauma, if you will. Uh, and that's true, I think, of emergency medicine. Uh, they, they, they jump into this as well in, in a lot of things that they do. Uh, 
having said that, I, I think because the evidence-based approach uh, has, has now been uh, widely spread, uh, for example, the Society of Surgical Oncology uh, and how the surgical oncologists uh, use evidence-based guidelines to measure what they're doing and, and their outcomes, uh, bariatric surgery uh, has, uh, has that arena. Certainly, the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is, an, is another area that has been uh, uh, a lot of uh, very important guidelines. <clears throat> so I, I think the, uh, the, the culture, at least from the X generation and, and the baby boomers, has been accepting. Uh, reluctant at first, but it's, it's, they, I think they have seen through their training programs that it kind of works in trauma and can work someplace else, as long as the evidence is credible and as long as it's presented in, in a credible format. Uh, <clears throat> I will say that uh, we are now uh, thinking about, uh, we have a new generation, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of discussion around the, uh, uh, the uh, baby boomer generation, uh, and then the X generation, and now the millennial, or the Y generation, they're called by some, uh, have a different approach on some of these issues. And, uh, uh, but I actually think uh, they will uh, be more responsive, and, and I think already are, to the guideline-driven approach uh, because they're wired. I mean, they, they, you can be in an elevator and uh, uh, you, you have a, a Y generation or a millennial with you, and uh, you, you have an idea about, I wonder if we should, uh, uh, this patient has C. diff. Uh, I got an idea here. And uh, with, by the time you get off the elevator, on the smartphone will be the, the most uh, recent uh, CDC guidelines on yep. you know, what works and what doesn't with C. diff. So you have it like minutes instead of, hey, look that up and give me a call. I mean, those days are gone. So, uh, And what about uh, the use of advanced practitioners in, in not so much implementation of the guideline but in drafting of the guideline. Are you guys using your physician assistants, nurse practitioners, et cetera, to help draft the guideline? Uh, you know, I don't uh, – I, I haven't thought about that. I, 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 I guess we do. When I look back on the committees that we have, we ha I think we've done it because they're part of the team. Uh, we haven't purposely said, well, we're going to uh, construct the, uh, the drafting committee of uh, uh, these – docs and these uh, APNs and these PAs, uh, they, they, you just pick the people that are out there doing it, and frequently they are. And that, that's another great point because uh, APNs and PAs in general are more task-oriented, uh, much more accepting of, of the guideline approach, uh, a little less individualistic. Uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just kind of the, the, the training paradigm that, that they've, they've gone through. So, uh, yeah, the, but the, the big risk with all of this is uh, we, uh, we're in for a big shortage of uh, general surgeons, which will translate into trauma surgeons, and also a shortage of APNs and, and PAs uh, going forward, which is all the more reason why uh, we need to stay optimistic about the uh, ability of uh, information technology uh, to come to our aid in a way that doesn't depersonalize our reaction to the patient. In other words, the last thing you want to do when you're interviewing a, or you're, t you're rounding on a trauma patient or you see them in a trauma bay is you don't want to be looking at your computer screen instead of looking them in the eye. On the other hand, if you have, inf if you have quick information at your fingertips, 
about what's the, what's the latest uh, uh, evidence-based approach to a specific problem that's right in front of you, and you can find that in seconds, your decision-making process, your confidence, the efficiency, and, and ultimately, uh, in my opinion, the outcomes will be improved. Excellent. Well, this has been certainly a very fascinating discussion about uh, the role of evidence-based guidelines, what used to be clinical practice guidelines, particularly in regards to your initial experiences in shock trauma uh, to date. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share your views with us. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Rhodes regarding the role of practice management guidelines in trauma care. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.